of Isaiah chapter 9, a prophecy we've looked at before, a prophecy well known to Christians and probably a prophecy well known to non-Christians, not because they know it's a prophecy, but because of Handel's Messiah, the great classical composition that we listen to every year at this time, which many people know, albeit they may not know that they're listening to the prophecy of Isaiah 9 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty of God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. He's going to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth forever. And the certainty to that rule and reign, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall perform this. The passion of God, the zeal that God has for his own glory, his own renown, is certain, was certain, actually performed it. And now this king who came and was laid in a manger rules and reigns forever now, only one day, to come back, we'll see and experience the rule and reign of Christ in person. So I want to focus our attention on one phrase in this prophecy, in verse 7, of the increase of his government. That's the title of the message this morning, of the increase of his government. Now, the word government means dominion or rule, and increase, of course, means increase, of the increase of his rule and dominion. So we'll look at three ways his rule is going to increase. And I want you to keep this in your mind as we move there. How is it that peace, which began to be accomplished at his birth, it was purposed, ordained in eternity past, how is it that the increase of our peace associated with that rule will increase from his birth and throughout eternity? How can shalom keep ever expanding, never ceasing, never ending, always advancing? Now that's staggering to think about, isn't it? Nothing here keeps expanding in this world. In fact, it's all decaying. It's all diminishing. We're living in the land of diminishing returns. But of the increase of his government, his rule, and that peace associated with, it goes on and on and on, ever increasing forever. So that's where we're going to end, but we'll start in verse 1, and we'll look again at these passages and look how is it that his dominion is increasing. Verse 1, nevertheless, the dimness or the gloom shall not be such as it was in her vexation when at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali to northern regions of the land of Palestine, or Israel, the promised land. And afterward, after this vexation, did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. So, first of all, the increase of his government or his rule in some way is in the land of the shadow of death 
it's concerning those that dwell in that land and that walk in darkness. Now, what is this prophecy concerning? Well, the immediate fulfillment of that would be, according to Isaiah 8, the warning to Judah that the Assyrians would come in and be a scourge to the land. They were going to come in and devastate the land of Israel, almost making it all the way to Jerusalem until God stops the king in his tracks. You can read that in Isaiah 10. He's going to punish the stout heart of the king of Assyria, which was the rod in his hand, the axe in his hand that God used for the purpose of judgment on Israel. Now, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, they received the brunt of the judgment because the northern regions were the first place the king of Assyria came into the land of promise. And it was those regions that received the most severe vexation. The gloom and the darkness and the judgment was most severe in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. The word lightly afflicted, afflicted means to trifle with. It's an expression that means it's as if God lightly esteemed these two regions. How is that? Because they were judged with the greatest severity. Some of them were deported, taken away out of the land. And much carnage was experienced primarily in those two regions. Now, afterward, this prophecy looks to a prefiguring of that fulfillment. In other words, afterward is a latter time where something, where this land experienced such severe judgment would experience a severe kind of blessing. Afterward, the word grievously afflicted means, in contrast to lightly esteemed, is heavy. Weighty, it can mean to be honored. It's a play on words here. They were lightly afflicted or esteemed. In the latter time, they'll be greatly afflicted or greatly honored. By the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations, and then the prophecy, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Upon Zebulun and Naphtali, they would experience, in contrast to the lightly esteemed way that God appeared to act toward them, they would be greatly afflicted or greatly honored. And of course, you know, the, the prophecy is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 4. We read the explanation of this prophecy. Verse 13 of Matthew 4. And leaving Nazareth, that is Jesus Christ, after his temptation in the wilderness, where he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he conquered the temptation of the devil on our behalf, testing his Messiahship. Leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast and the borders of what? Zebulun and Naphtalim, the same two regions, the northern part of the promised land. Why did he do that? Why did he move after hearing of John the Baptist's death into the land of Capernaum, into these two regions? Verse 14, so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Esaias or Isaiah the prophet saying. So Jesus moving in sync with the fulfillment of prophecy. And this is it. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region in shadow of death, light is sprung up. A few observations here. One, his increase will be 
to the nations. So the land of the shadow of death, those that sat in darkness, is beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles or the nations. That small band of soldiers in Acts chapter 1 verse 13, 120 names has grown and grown and the dominion and rule of Christ has been expanding and expanding and it has circled the globe and it is still going far and wide to the nations of the earth. Beyond Jordan, the land of the Gentiles. This is the land of the shadow of death. Now, why are the two northern regions of Jerusalem, or Jews, rather, the the promised land, why is that being called land of the Gentiles? Because when the Assyrian king sent the army into those two regions and deported some of them, he deposed pagans into the land, and they mixed with the pagans, and they became half-breeds. See, for the pure people of the south in Jerusalem, they despise the people of Samaria, the Sea of Galilee, that area. Why? Oh, because they weren't pure Jewish people. They referred to them as the Gentile dogs. So this was the border of Phoenicia where the border began, started with Israel, but began for the Gentiles. And so this land of the shadow of death, the increase of Christ's reign, the increase of his rule will include the nations, the nations. Now there's a principle here we need to remember. This land of the shadow of death, this area which was despised by the Jewish people of the South is a principle we see unfolding in the life of Christ himself. It's often those despised people are where you find the people of the Lord and where Jesus is ministering. So he spent most of his ministry not in Jerusalem. He went there for the feast. Where do you find Jesus most of the time? In the shadow of death, in the land of darkness, among Galilee of the nations, the Gentiles, the despised. That's where his ministry began here in Mark 4 or Matthew 4. That's where it's continued. That's where we see him teaching most of the time, not among the pure breeds of the south. We see this in the Magi that came to worship Jesus, the first worshipers of Jesus when he was laid in a manger. Who were they? Well, they were from the east. Where is that? Likely Babylon. This is the same word, Magi, that's used for the Babylonian magicians in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint. Who are these men? Well, they're not Jewish people because they came to see the king of the Jews, not their king. So the very first worshipers are not Jewish people, they're Gentiles, and the birthplace of where Jesus was born was a city that was the smallest among the thousands of Judah. It it wasn't the greatest city. It wasn't Jerusalem. He wasn't born in a palace. It was one of the smallest cities of Judea, which was prophesied in Micah 5, 2. O Bethlehem Ephratah, though there'll be little among the thousands in Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, he that is to be ruler in Israel. You know that song, O Little Town of Bethlehem? That wasn't just a writer trying to make up words, it was a little town. He was announced to little people or lowly people, the shepherds abiding in the field at night. He was born and put in a manger in a stable. His ministry was a ministry of lowliness. He was poor. He was a carpenter. His parents were 
very poor. They offered two, two, two turtle doves or two pigeons, which was a provision of the law at the birth of Christ for poor people. Everything that attended Christ's birth and everything about his ministry was a ministry and the announcement was given and his life displayed that he came to dwell among people that were despised and afflicted. I leave in the midst of thee a despised and afflicted people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 3. Secondly, what is specifically meant by the land of the shadow of death and the people sat in darkness? The second observation is that they were comfortable with the darkness. They sat in the darkness. The land of the shadow of death. The shadow of death in expression means there's great danger, Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. See, the valleys in which the shepherd would take the sheep on a trek to the, to the high mountain pasture lands were the best grass is found through the valleys. There were predators. There were thieves. So the land of the shadow of death is a place of great danger. What is the danger of the shadow of death? Galilee of the nations. It's that we're comfortable in the dark. When you sit, that's, that's usually a place of comfort, a place of rest. The danger in the shadow of death, for which Jesus became light. First of all, his ministry was light. His teaching, his instruction, the light that he, that he gave by instruction was in this land of the shadow of death. But it's also a ministry that speaks to our hearts, that awakens our hearts, right? Jesus said in John three nineteen, this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. See, when you sit in darkness and you don't flee the darkness, you love the darkness. You're comfortable with the darkness. Light has come into the world. The light has shined. And men by nature, we by nature, we don't like the light. We love the darkness because our deeds are evil. Now, evil deeds are not the root cause of loving the darkness. We love the darkness. The result is all of our deeds are evil. All that we do, all that we are, is evil because of this root issue. We don't love the light. We're not drawn to the light by nature. We don't have the light inside of us in terms of knowing the supremacy of Christ. And therefore, this sitting in darkness this shadow of death is the danger of loving darkness. Do you love darkness? Have you come to the light? Have you seen the great light? Have you wondered at the glory of the light that God would become a baby? That the God of the universe, the God that sustains all things, upholds all things, would actually inhabit the body of a human being, a baby, and subject himself to conditions that you yourself would not subject yourself to if you could avoid it. Such poverty, such lowliness, such humiliation. The, the kind of humiliation that was despised and rejected by the Jewish people 
themselves. So this darkness, this land of the shadow of death, is the place where men love darkness. Now, if the, if the increase of his rule is going to increase and overcome the darkness, it's going to increase among the nations, it's going to increase that dominion in such a way that the light is overcoming the darkness, by what means is the darkness overcome? Verse 17 of Matthew 4. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say. From what time? The fulfillment of the prophecy we're looking at, Isaiah 9-2, which was being fulfilled when Jesus moved to Capernaum, the very land in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. There is where he came to do ministry. There is where the people sat in darkness. There is the land of the shadow of death, the place of danger. At that time, Jesus began to preach and to say what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His rule, his dominion increases and overcomes darkness through the light of repentance. Now, this is a word we need to remember in our culture of Christianity today. A culture where the doctrine of repentance is being rejected by churches, and they are not hiding it. I saw recently one church who invites people to come forward and to express what gender they want to be called. And then the whole church makes some kind of statement affirming that gender, which was, is contrary to God's word. You see, a gospel without repentance is a false gospel. It's no gospel at all. Why didn't Jesus say, believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Well, in fact, he really did, didn't he? First of all, if the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then the king is at hand. And therefore, to flee the darkness, you've got to turn to something else, which is the king who is the king of light. We come under his dominion by faith and repentance because you can't have one without the other. A gospel without repentance is a false gospel and a church that is teaching a false gospel is going to be labeled by God as what? A false church. And I am deeply concerned at the number of Christians who are willing to come under a false gospel because of everything that's happening at the church or because he preaches so good. And yet a denial of the doctrine of repentance is to be rejected by the Christians of our culture. We are to reject it. And it's the church's responsibility to preserve the gospel. And if you're supposed to preserve the gospel, you must know when a gospel is being preached, it was without repentance. How would that even work? Imagine the person that comes forward and affirms their own lifestyle, affirms what they want to be. How would they even thank God for that? God, I thank you for allowing me to stay the king of my own heart. I knew you'd understand. I thank you for letting me be the person I want to be according to the desires that I have and according to the way I see life and want to live it. I thank you, Lord, for being the kind of king that lets me be king of my own universe and sit upon the throne of my own desires and be exactly what I want to be. That is the broad road that leads to the pit of hell or destruction. And yet Christians are coming under such ministry because they're so wonderful and they speak so well and things are happening so great. 
and yet not discerning, or, or they don't care that the doctrine of repentance is being denied, and therefore the gospel is being denied. Therefore, the rule and the reign of this Messiah is being denied by people who are calling themselves Christians and churches. Beloved, it's a time we're living in, a time for discernment, a time to understand the truth that when Jesus announces his ministry, the domain and the rule over the darkness, his word is repent. John the Baptist, when Zacharias, his mouth was opened, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesied concerning the coming of John the Baptist, which was now born, and the relatives wanted to name him Zacharias, and they went to the father trying to trump the mother who said John, and Zacharias wrote out, his name is John. And then he speaks, and what does he say? Thou, child, shall be a servant of the Most High. And his job was to prepare the way before the coming Messiah. How would he do that? Well, it's similar to the prophecy we're talking about. A light to them that sit in darkness and those that dwell in the land of the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So this expansion of peace in Isaiah 9 is only going to happen through repentance because the one word ministry of John the Baptist was the ministry of repentance. Repentance. Beloved, if we're coming by faith to Christ, then what are we coming from? We're coming from idols. We're turning to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 If you haven't turned from idols, then you're not coming to serve the King. You see how repentance is so vital for the life of the church and for the advancement of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom, which is by means of the gospel. If we're not turning away from idols, then we are not turning to God, but simply the idols of our own heart and trying to affirm the fact that God is pleased with our own idols. John the Baptist said when he baptized people, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now imagine how that would win friends and influence people today. Bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. What is the fruit that is commensurate or it demonstrates repentance. And sometimes we think it's just what you leave behind. And that's part of it. If you don't leave the idol behind, you haven't really turned to God. But it's more than just stopping something. Take a married couple who's had a miserable marriage. Just miserable. Say, we, we've repented. We, we both repented. Why did you repent? We're, we're tired of the arguing. Life is miserable. Is that really repentance? Now, repentance can include the desire not to argue and not to be miserable. But if that's all it is, you haven't repented. That's why sometimes a marriage can still have problems, because you really haven't repented. You haven't really turned from something. You've just agreed to have a truce. Why? Life is so miserable. Life is so painful. Take the drug addict. The drug addict that repents. You say, well, why did you repent? <sighs> It was ruining my life. I mean, it was destroying me. Now, repentance can include that. You certainly don't want to live in that misery. But if that's all it is, there is no proof that you've really turned to God. 
or the criminal, which is probably the easiest illustration. He says, I'm finished with a life of crime. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a changed man. I'm repented. Why? I don't want to go back to prison. Now, it can include that, right? Certainly, prison is not a good place to be. But if that's all it is, it's just a stopping something, then John would challenge that kind of repentance. How would he challenge it? When they said, what what do we do? How do do we do this? He would say, if you have two coats, give one away. And if you have a lot of food, just give the surpluses away. How is that a fruit of repentance? Because it demonstrates that the king is reliable. See, you've come to the king. You've stopped hoarding. You've stopped the selfishness. I've stopped that way of life. How do you know? Because I'm relying on the king to provide a second coat the day I need a second coat. Or more food the day I need more food. See, turning from selfishness, moving toward the king. What's the fruit of that? Now you're generous. Number two to the publicans. Don't exact more than is appointed you. You know, you tax collectors, quit extorting people. Jesus is a treasure. How do you turn away? I'm going to stop a life of extorting people. I'm just, you know, making people's lives miserable. I don't feel good about myself. No. I'm going to stop extorting. Take what is appointed me by the Roman government because Jesus is my treasure. There's faith going to the king away from what? Repentance. Turning from idols. Then do the soldiers quit doing violence to people and falsely accusing them and be content with your wages? Jesus is the satisfier. He's the satisfier. See? Okay, I'll stop hurting people. I don't want to falsely accuse. It gives me a bad reputation. People think bad of me. And I guess I make enough money, so I'll stop. And that's not repentance. Only when Jesus is the satisfier can you be really content with your salary right now. Right. So the king's dominion, his rule, is advancing. And he's taking people out of the nations, out of the darkness that they love, because now they love something superior. So repentance and leaving what you once loved only is repentance when you found something you love better. And the answer is the rule and reign of Christ. It is Christ himself, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Is the king's rule advancing in your life? Are you seeing more of his love? Are you seeing him more as a treasure? Do you find him to be reliable concerning what he said? Do you find him to be so reliable that you can so bank your hope on him tomorrow that you can give a coat away? Or some food away. You can give your time away. You can give your resources away. Because this king whose kingdom is advancing. And it's, it's, it's expanding. Is expanding through faith and repentance. Repentance. And repentance is a joyful sorrow. Because when we repent. We've seen the king in his glory yet once again. And that's what makes us feel so bad. Why? Because I didn't see him as reliable. I didn't see him as a treasure. I didn't see him as a satisfier.
In fact, I saw something else that way. It's what caused my sin. Number two, back in our prophecy. And verse 3. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his impressor, as in the day of Midian, that's the day of Gideon and Judges. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. Right? The next thing we see is dominion increasing, not just over the darkness, but his dominion is increasing with joy. Thou hast multiplied or enlarged the nation. Now, that could mean enlarged in population. When the nation comes back from the captivity they will experience in the future in Babylon, they, they will multiply, they'll increase, they'll be enlarged. But an enlarged population is not always enlarged productivity, is it? Our own, culture, our own country is a case in point. Our immigration policy right now means there's multiplication. I mean, the population of America is increasing, but the productivity is what? going down, and inflation's going up, right? So it could be he's going to just enlarge the nation. There'll be a lot more people, but that doesn't mean productivity. Now, the illustration in our text is that of productivity. How? The joy of harvest and the joy of spoils. Two things essential for a good growing economy in Israel was harvest. If harvest doesn't happen, there is no joy. Right? It was an agricultural economy. Everything was hanging on the harvest. So it was according to the joy in harvest. Now, older people understand the joy of harvest. Sorry, you younger people probably don't understand that much. You just get whatever produce you want year-round. Now, you can kind of tell it's not as good at certain times of the year because they pick it green and ship it up here and it ripens and it's just not the same. But if you, if you know what it's like in a harvest, even if it's your backyard garden, you know there's something far superior to the fruit of that garden than there is to the fruit you can get right now at the corner grocery store. There's no comparison. And then the joy of dividing the spoils. In 1 Samuel 30, when the Amalekites took Ziklag and burned it, that's where David and his family was, and took all the women and children, David pursued them, and when they caught them, they found them. Rejoicing, eating, drinking, and being merry, and dancing for the great spoil. They had spoiled in Judah and the Philistines. It's, it's plundering, it's taking all the goods. Now, the only limitation... I don't know the rules of warfare today, but it was expected then you take the spoils. That's just part of the victory. The only limitation to what you could get is what you could carry. I mean, if you had a cart, a wagon, <clears throat> all the gold and silver you could find was yours. It's all yours. And it was expected that that was the spoil of war. You could have it. It's yours. Why does the writer in this translation say then, you've multiplied the nation, but you haven't increased the joy, but they do have joy, like the joy of harvest and spoils. 
because the writer wants us to know that the dominion of the king is joy, but not that kind of joy. That's why I use this simile. According to, as, or like. He's drawing a comparison. There is joy, and the joy is increased, but not like that. It's similar. It is genuine joy, but this is by comparison. Now, a few observations here, what that would mean. First of all, it means that all other joys that are like harvest and like spoils are fading joys. They're just temporary. So we need to understand this about the dominion of Jesus Christ. And this is a word for us in this holiday season, isn't it? There is great joy, family, gathering, exchanging gifts, the food. I mean, I don't just eat, I put on the feed sack, as they say. You know, the horse that has a feed sack, you just eat continually till you want to stop, till you can't eat anymore. Those are all joys, but those joys are temporary, fading and fleeting, aren't they? I mean, just think of the number of people, you may know some, that are not really having that joy today. Broken relationships, broken families, brokenness, because sin has brought brokenness, even at a time where people are expected to have joy, because it is, as some say, the most wonderful time of the year. Some people are weeping, and they're not having that kind of joy. See, the message of hope is, the king didn't come to give you that joy. He came to give you eternal joy, expanding joy. As Jesus says, remember in John 15, continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you. that My joy might remain in you and your joy might be full. See? Abiding joy by which... The commandments of God are kept because of the root of this joy is what? The love of God the Father. That doesn't fade. His love for you never fades. That's why we find him laying in a manger. That's why he came from heaven to earth. That's why he lived a righteous life. That's why he bore the wrath of God. So that we would experience a love that would not let us go. And if a love doesn't let us go, then joy never lets you go. Because Jesus says, my joy no man taketh from you. Oh yes, there are times and seasons we don't experience that joy. Sin gets in the way and affects that joy. But Jesus says, I came to bring you to the Father. And the Father is the source of that ultimate joy. And if no one can take you from the Father, out of the Father's hands, or out of my hands, because my Father which gave them me is greater than all, then your joy can never cease. It can never ultimately be taken away. This joy that is likened to it, it does, it is, and it has been taken from you at times, hasn't it? So his dominion is an increasing dominion of joy, because it's not fading, it's not temporary. Secondly, this joy is said to be before God. Look at the text. They joy before thee, like, according, as. 
So this joy is the joy of the Father. It's the joy of knowing God. It's the joy of knowing Christ. And here's the second observation. Because it's before God, all legitimate joy should be just that, before God. We experience legitimate joys of this season and other seasons in family, in relationships, in food, in exchanging gifts. In many ways, we experience good things for the body, good things in life. These are legitimate joys as long as they're not forbidden in Scripture. How do we rejoice before God with legitimate joys? We make sure they're before Him, which means we thank Him for them. We acknowledge Him as the source of all legitimate joy. We acknowledge Him as putting joy and gladness in our hearts, even through food, which God leaves Himself witness in Acts chapter 14. So when our joy is before God, it's in God, all legitimate joys are acknowledged from God. So we can enjoy them. You don't have to feel guilt if you open that gift. You can like it. You can enjoy it as long as it's before Him. Thank Him and acknowledge Him and then use the gifts. Use what God has given you for His glory and enjoy it. And then third observation It's a joy before him, which means it can't be beyond him. That would be illegitimate joy. Exodus 20, verse 3. I am the Lord thy God that brought thee out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Now they joy before thee, but you can't joy beyond him. See, idolatry is a joy that's illegitimate. It's forbidden. It's a joy that rivals God. It's a joy beyond God. It's a joy where joys and the object of joy replace the Savior of joy. So that the legitimate joy becomes the idol and therefore becomes the illegitimate joy, if that makes sense. Why? Because it becomes before God. It rivals God. Nothing is to rival the supremacy of God. Nothing. So what happens when we do that? Which we do that. We go back to point one. Repentance. Repentance. Because still we can experience times of darkness, although we've been brought into the light of Christ's presence. So no joy is to be a joy above God, which means we are to seek, we are to go after, and we are to acknowledge when we have such joys. Are you experiencing joys that you've raised to the level of supremacy? You've raised to the level of idolatry because they become everything to you. How would you know that? Well, Isaac Watts wrote those words. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let us receive her king, we receive him through repentance. He says, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. How do the nations prove that? How do you prove the glories of his righteousness? How do you prove the wonders of his love? Well, the word prove means to test, it's like a proving ground where you 
prove the reliability of a piece of equipment. In the military, the proving ground is where you do just that. Can, can the jet shoot the rocket with accuracy? Will the tank shoot the ammo and hit the target? How will the nations, how will we prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love? Incidentally, all human beings are going to prove this. They're going to test it. Well, you test his righteousness as reliable by trusting in his righteousness. You've proven the glories of his righteousness. The opposite way would be to reject his righteousness. Why would you do that? It's not reliable. The righteousness of Christ and his glories are just not reliable for me. That's a rejection. That's a, that's a testing and a rejection of his righteousness. Secondly, how would you prove the wonders of his love? You would prove it by showing that love is a reliable source of joy. Because when you trust in his righteousness and stand by faith, that faith produces joy. And therefore, you prove the reliability of his love and the wonders of his love by rejoicing and coming under the waterfall of his love and enjoying the very thing that Christ purchased for you. How do you reject that? Well, you don't trust his righteousness and you say, well, his love is just not a reliable source of joy for me. For which when the king comes, you would be banished from the presence of his glory in flaming fire forever. All human beings, including every person in this room, is going to prove the glories of his righteousness or the wonders of his love. May God bless us to prove the wonders and the glories of it by trusting him. Now, how would you know? If your joy is not primarily in secondary lesser joys, when they fade, when they're taken away, when they are temporary, which means they flee, you're steady, you're firm, and you're steadfast. Doesn't mean you're not hurting. Doesn't mean you're not struggling. Doesn't mean that there's not Weakness and even sin that attends that. What it means is you're, you're still on the pathway of the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. And therefore, you're testing, you're proving he's everything he said he is. How? When those joys are ripped right out of your hands. And probably everybody here to some degree has experienced a deep disappointment. Maybe even a shallow disappointment. Some dream shattered. Some joy, legitimate joy, a joy that you could have was ripped right out of your hands. Your response to those fading temporary joys will reveal to us, did we make too much of that object? You know, we really don't know that until we're tested, do we? I can say, well, you know, I, I don't think so, but then, well, now I was shown Something other than I thought. See, the day of fire is the day of testing. See? And so this king, when he comes, he will multiply 
increase the joy, not that kind of joy. Those are legitimate joys as long as they're under the supremacy of Christ, but it's a joy that lasts. And how does that happen? For thou hast broken the yoke of the burden, the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor. All images of slavery, all images of the taskmaster in Exodus, where the Egyptians kept the people in bondage until they left the bondage. And where did they go? They were the apple of his eye. He brought them on wings of uh, eagles' wings unto himself. The picture here is when the yoke of the burden and the staff and the oppressor's rod is broken, sin is broken, sin is canceled, the rule and dominion of sin is broken, it's, it's rule. And when the rule of sin and the dominion of desire is broken in the heart, what takes its place? The king who rules forever. He's broken the power of sin. And now the permanence. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. At the end of the victory, when the spoils were taken, they rolled the garments of the soldiers that were defeated. They were covered in blood. The, the, the confused noise of the battle is over and they fueled the fire as a symbol of what? Victory is accomplished. The warfare is over. The victory has been accomplished in Christ. So, beloved, may our joy ever be increasing by the power of the Spirit through faith in Christ as we enjoy the glories of His righteousness more and more and we experience more and more the wonders of His love through the Word of God. And lastly, the increase where we started, <clears throat> we'll read verse 6 again, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government, the, the rule shall be upon his shoulder, which means he, he shoulders it, he carries it. His name is Wonderful. We wonder and admire him. <clears throat> He's the counselor. We come under his instruction. He's the mighty God, creator of the ends of the earth. He's the everlasting father. He's the source or origin of everlasting life. And he's the ruler of peace. He's the prince of peace of the increase of his government and peace, no end. Now, we started by asking the question, how is it in any dimension, peace, joy, all that Christ came to secure for us by his death, how does that increase forever? Well, let's think about the word shalom again. This is the Old Testament word for peace, shalom. The New Testament word is different word, has a similar meaning. We know now that the peace we have is an inward peace and an inward rest, resting in who Christ is and what he's done. That peace ebbs and flows, doesn't it? We have to endeavor to keep the unity of the peace, unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We have, we have to pursue peace. It's not just automatic, but we have it. It's, it's secured. It's done. It's finished. But there's a shalom that's coming that is complete, it's whole, it's sound. That's, that's the basic meaning of the word. It's used in Joshua 8.31 concerning a stone, the adjective for shalem, a, a whole stone, which means what? It's sound, it's complete, there are no chips, there are no cracks, it's a complete stone. It's used concerning Solomon's temple. When it was completed, the house of the Lord was 
shalem, perfected. All the stones were in place. Everything was finished. It's totally accomplished. It's complete. It's whole. It's used of a wall that has no breach or gap in it. It's, it's a whole wall. All the stones are in place, none of them falling out, like you know, stone walls or brick pavers at your house that keep coming out. Nothing like that in a, in a shalom wall, complete whole. Now think about what that's going to mean forever. Think about what wholeness really means. Mental soundness. You will never, ever have another thought that troubles you. You'll never battle another desire that you shouldn't have. We are not whole today, are we? How do we battle the lust of the flesh? It's a war. None of that will be part of your thinking. Again, not a troubled thought ever. Mentally, emotionally, you will never be afraid again. Anxiety, worry, anger, the wrong kind, all the emotions that are good and can be good that can sometimes be so out of whack. I'm glad to tell you I'll never have a mood swing the rest of my eternity. My wife's rejoicing in that. We won't be married there. No mood swings. No ups and downs. No manic and depression. Emotionally. Physically. No more surgery. No more hearing aids. No more parts yanked out of your body. No more knee replacements. No creaks in your shoulder. Physically, provisionally, whatever's needed will be supplied. You'll, you'll never have a moment where you're incomplete provisionally. I need somebody. All needs met. Spiritually, you'll abide satisfied forever. Your soul will be saturated and complete, whole. Spiritually, you'll be totally satisfied forever. There'll never be a moment where you say, something's missing. You know how you have that emptiness? Well, everybody does. I mean, the whole world's empty. Every day they're searching and searching. Where can I find fulfillment? For the believer, there'll never be another moment where you feel empty, where you feel bored. You feel like, what, what, what did you do? Totally satisfied. Financially. Now, I don't know if there's any. Well, the currency of heaven is grace. I know that. And I don't know if there'll be spending and buying there, but let's just go with it because that's part of shalom here, isn't it? Financially, you'll be in a prosperous condition. You'll never have need of provision you'll have everything you need and we'll just say financially that that's wholeness totally complete you won't have to worry about a retirement you it's good forever right meteorologically that's a hard one right the climate no earthquakes no tornadoes no gloomy days all sunshine the weather whatever it'll be will be perfect cosmologically the entire cosmos will be totally restored for the whole creation groaneth and travaileth until now, waiting for the adoption. Even creation itself shall be delivered from the bondage or slavery of decay and corruption. The whole universe will be restored because sin has been conquered. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? It's been removed. We'll be whole and complete. Now, how can that increase forever? That's wonderful, isn't it? 
Well, think about the dominion of Christ, his rule and reign. He will be active in the operations of his rule. He's not going to deliver up the kingdom to the Father and sit down and say, well, that rule is over, I'm finished. No, he'll, he'll reign forever. He'll rule forever. And we will experience the operations and the activity of that rule forever. How does that work? Maybe there's a little speculation here, but this is the way we can conceive of it. We don't see the active operation of his rule today. We know he rules and reigns. We, hear it, we see it from the word and we experience it in the results. We interpret it by the word. But then we will behold. We will see the operations and the activity of his rule. And his rule is what? Infinite. That means we will see the operations of the infinite rule he'll be carrying out and the displays of the glory of the revelation of the operation of that rule in action and therefore, the peace associated with that rule will expand forever. Think of it this way. Think of a day in heaven. I know there's not a day in heaven. Well, there's just one day. You are whole. You're completely satisfied. You observed. You experienced the active operation of the rule of Christ, and you were satisfied. The next day you wake up, what happens? Oh, but there's another angle on the operation of that rule that you didn't see the day before. Now, the day before, you're totally and completely satisfied. It's all whole. It's shalom. But now the day after, because you saw a different angle on the infinite display of the operation of that rule, what happened? Your peace increased. If God is infinite and his understanding is infinite and the Bible declares that he is, you can never get to the end of God. And therefore, the rule of Christ will be infinite. His dominion will be infinite. And you will never, ever see an exact duplicate of the operation the day before. Because he's infinite. All the fading joys and fading peace we experience in circumstances will be eclipsed by the peace and joy of the rule of Christ who rules now, gives us joy now, we have peace now, we fight for those things, but then we will be whole and complete forever and our joy, our peace will have no end. That's staggering. That's something that's even challenging to think about. But we believe it because the Bible declares it. And that's where we're headed, beloved. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you made him the object of your faith? Have you proven him and the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love by seeing him as reliable? He's reliable. He's a treasure. He's the satisfier. And he will fulfill every promise he's made to you, both now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't deserve, we know, the, the mercies, the joy, the peace, the, the wonders that we read and hear about in the word, that you are wonderful, Jesus. You are our counselor for which we come under and receive the guidance we need. You are the mighty creator, Gar. God, you are the author of our eternal salvation. You are the prince, the ruler of our peace. Lord, may we have more of that peace in a season where some are not experiencing peace and some are not experiencing joy through many broken realities in life. But may we find in Christ alone the source, the reliable source of our righteousness that's from you and the, the wonders of your love and the contentment that can only be found in you. And may we press toward the mark 
of the high calling of God. May we set our affections and our hope on that which is to come and know that one day you will deliver shalom and everything in the universe will be just as it should be, complete, whole, perfect, and wonderful. May that be our hope in Jesus' name. Amen.